Greetings once again and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. We're working our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This week we've reached sermons 248 through to 254 and those are in the new Park Street Pulpit Volume 5 and we're featuring this week the sermon 251 which has the title The Necessity of the Spirit's Work. It was preached on the 8th of May 1859 at the Music Hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens. Spurgeon's text on the occasion is Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. It's a sermon in which Spurgeon cuts to the chase. He simply says that, uh, in the first place, the miracles of Christ were not unnecessary, not mere freaks of power, displays of power truly, but each one having a practical end. And so the same is true of the promises of God. We don't have one promise which may be regarded as a mere freak of grace. Each is intentional. It's purposeful. There's a necessity that lies behind the promises of God. And that simple principle he's going to apply to the promise of Ezekiel 36 and verse 27, that God will put his spirit within his people. I will put my spirit within you. If that's God's promise, then it's absolutely necessary that the Holy Spirit should be at work within us if we are going to be saved. And all Spurgeon is going to do in the course of this sermon is to really explain and defend and prove and demonstrate that assertion that he begins with, that proposition that he lays down, that the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary to us if we would be saved. And he's going to do that by way of five strands of evidence. First of all, it is very manifest, it's very clear that this is true, if we remember what man is by nature. Secondly, we see that the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary if we consider the means that are used in salvation, which are of themselves inadequate to accomplish the work apart from the operations of the Holy Spirit. The third reason for the absolute necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart may be clearly seen from this fact that all which has been done by God the Father and all that has been done by God the Son must be ineffectual to us unless the Spirit shall reveal these things to our souls. The fourth strand of evidence is that the experience of the true Christian is a reality, but it never can be known and felt without the Spirit of God. And then the fifth and final strand of evidence is that the acts, the acceptable acts of the Christian's life cannot be performed without the Spirit and hence again the necessity for the Spirit of God. Now before we dive in to uh, consider what Spurgeon actually says, those of us who preach and teach might consider how he says it. He doesn't Uh, just rehearse his proposition again and again in that bald language, but each time he restates that point as he develops his themes. So at every stage of this sermon, at each of these five points, he's driving home that proposition without necessarily restating it in precisely the same language. And in this way, he's consistently underscoring or underlining the point that he's trying to make as a preacher. So that consistent repetition drives it home, but the helpful variety keeps it fresh 
And Spurgeon is really very good at doing this, at uh, pressing home what he wants us to learn. Uh, Very often at the end of every point he makes, he virtually underlines what he's been saying. He goes back to the main point of his sermon. Here he restates it as well in a different fashion in every heading that he has. So let's look then at the substance of what he has to say. And it's a, a an effective, straightforward sermon on the operations of the Holy Spirit, the work that he does specifically having to do with salvation in the hearts of men and women. So in demonstrating or proving his proposition, he wants to first of all make the remark that it's very clear that the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary if we remember what man is by nature. That's the starting point. What does the, uh, what does the Holy Spirit have to deal with? Or what do we have to deal with, perhaps more, more accurately? What are we looking at? What's the nature of the problem which underlines for us the necessity of the Holy Spirit's work in a sinner. Well, Holy Scripture tells us that man by nature is dead in trespasses and sins, not sick, not faint, not grown callous and hardened and seared, but absolutely dead. And so, drawing an image from the the same prophet that the text is taken from, the spirit finds men as destitute of spiritual life as Ezekiel's dry bones. The spirit brings bone to bone and fits the skeleton together, and then he comes from the four winds and breathes into the slain, and they live, and stand upon their feet, an exceeding great army, and worship God. But apart from that, Apart from the vivifying influence of the Spirit of God, men's souls must lie in the valley of dry bones, dead and dead forever. So the starting point is that men are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. There is no instinct to life in them, no appetite for life in them apart from the Spirit's work. And it's worse than that that man is not only dead in sin, but he is utterly and entirely averse to everything that is good and right. And you see how the the various images that the Bible uses to describe mankind in his lost condition heap up upon one another, utterly dead with regard to spiritual life, but alive and kicking, angry and fiercely opposed to God with regard to everything that is good and right. And both of those things are true. So Spurgeon tells us that work your way through the Bible and you continually find the will of man described as being contrary to the things of God. Man is opposed to God. They will not come to Christ that they might have life. And so you you see this hostility to the divine spirit The fallen man, apart from God, hates grace, despises the way in which grace is brought to him. This is why people react so strongly against the gospel when it's brought to them. And he talks about a great writer who made the remark that he never knew a man who held any great theological error who did not also hold a doctrine which diminished the depravity of man. And Spurgeon's using that to strike at the Arminian error that says that man has it in himself to respond to what God does, that there's a a freeness of the will, that there's not just a free agency, but a man can effectively raise himself. And that diminishes the desperate character of the fallen man. 
But there's another problem on the other side, says Spurgeon, the antinomian, who says that man cannot do anything, that he's not at all responsible, and he's not bound to anything. It's not his duty to believe. It's not his duty to repent. And thus the same uh, problem occurs, that the sinfulness of man is diminished because you don't have the right views of the fall. But once, says the preacher, get the correct view that man is utterly fallen, powerless, guilty, defiled, lost, condemned, and you must be sound on all points of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Once believe man to be what the scripture says he is, once believe his heart to be depraved, his affections perverted, his understanding darkened, his will perverse, and you must hold that if such a wretch as that be saved, it must be the work of the Spirit of God and of the Spirit of God alone. So the first line of evidence is that if man is what the scriptures declare him to be, dead in trespasses and sins and opposed to God, then without the work of the Holy Spirit, there is no possibility that a dead rebel should be brought to life and subdued to the will of God. But there's a second proof. Salvation must be the work of the Spirit in us because the means used in salvation are of themselves inadequate for the accomplishment of the work. First and foremost among those means stands the preaching of the Word of God. And Spurgeon's just pointing out that though it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe, that the the preacher himself and even the message that he brings are in the opinions of the world despicable and pointless and empty. It's utter vanity. And says Spurgeon, when the world looks at the, the men who preach and when the world sees the place where people are being saved, it turns up its nose. It's a sneer. There's no appetite for the instruments that God uses. And indeed, he says, when men come to hear a successful minister, they are apt to say, they're inclined to say, well, I don't see anything in him. Ah, no, he says, but you have not examined the eternal arm that reaps its harvest with this sword of the Spirit. God, says Spurgeon, has usually blessed the weakest to do the most good. Now, we appreciate the simplicity and the clarity of Spurgeon's sermons. We've already talked about his skill in putting together this string of proofs to press home God's truth. But you could also step back and you say, this is just truth. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but it's He's simply saying what the Bible says. And you perhaps have been reading these sermons and you're saying, but I know men who preach like this and I myself might try to preach like this. And these aren't always great sermons and perhaps uh, we're picking some of the ones that are most immediately obvious and helpful. But we say, really, there's not always a great deal in this to commend them. Even as Christians, we might say we appreciate their simplicity, we appreciate the earnestness, but they're not particularly polished, they're not always particularly clever, there's nothing that's particularly impressive about them, and sometimes there's a almost a sense of just straightforwardness. And yet, these are the sermons under which, what, thousands upon thousands of people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Spurgeon is the last man who would say, it's because of my eloquence, it's because of my brilliance. He says, no, it's because of the Spirit of Christ, because the means that God uses in and of themselves could not accomplish the grant of life to those who are dead and the subduing of the souls of those who are in rebellion. You might as well expect to raise the dead by whispering in their ears as hope to save souls by preaching to them if it were not for the agency of the Spirit. And then he moves on, uh, not just now the preaching, but now the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now Spurgeon has a very high view of both of those ordinances as a rich means of grace. We're not going to discuss that immediately, uh, not going to look at it on this occasion. But uh, the way he speaks about his own baptism and the baptism of others, the way he preaches and speaks of the Lord's table, Spurgeon genuinely believes, as we ought to, that in those ordinances, Christ draws near to the souls of those who engage by faith. But for all that, there's nothing in baptism that in and of itself can possibly bless anybody. Immersion in water does not save a man or a woman or a child. And then, with regard to the eating of bread and the drinking of wine at the Lord's Supper, can it by any means be conceived by any rational man that there's anything in the mere piece of bread that we eat or in the wine that we drink? And yet, baptism and the Lord's Supper are blessings to the soul. They uh, draw us closer to Jesus Christ. They bring to us and seal to us some of the favours of heaven. How, says Spurgeon, if it's just water, just bread, just wine? It is because the Spirit of God is witnessing through the water, through the wine, through the bread, and thus these things become means of grace to our souls. They edify only insofar as the Holy Spirit is at work. They secure the conviction of sinners or the establishment of saints. They bring God's people to commune with Christ only by the influence of the divine Spirit of God. Now a third line of proof. The absolute necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart may be clearly seen from this fact that all which has been done by God the Father and all that has been done by God the Son must be ineffectual to us unless the Spirit shall reveal these things to our souls. Now, he's speaking carefully but clearly. He is not denying the operations of the Father or of the Son. He is insisting upon the Trinitarian nature of salvation, that Father, Son and Spirit must be engaged together in order that salvation should come into the soul of a man. So, he says, for example, the Father elects his people. But what effect does that doctrine have, that act of God have, until the Spirit of God enters into him? Or, he asks, uh, the covenant of grace, the, the determination made between the Father and the Son that he would save his people from their sins, those who had been given to him by the gift of his Father. But, he says, the covenant's a lofty tree laden with fruit, but the Spirit's the one who shakes the tree and makes the fruit fall from it until it comes to the level of our standing, how we can receive it. 
or the redemption of Christ. There's no doubt about the accomplishment of salvation by Christ as he dies upon the cross. There's no question as to the value of his work. There's no question as to the efficacy of his blood. But the preacher might preach that blood of Christ a thousand times and a man might neglect it. It's nothing to some that Jesus should die. And until the Holy Spirit applies the blood, until the Holy Spirit brings that truth to bear upon the soul, Christ brings no advantage, saving, personal and lasting, without the Spirit of God baptizing a man in the fountain filled with his blood and washing you from head to foot in that pool. And so Spurgeon's point is that the the blessings hang on the nail but we are too short to reach them. Everything has been accomplished. All that is needful is provided, but it is by God's decree that the Holy Spirit brings those things to bear upon us. For without him, the things of the Father and of the Son, the works that they have done are of no avail to us. And this brings us to a fourth point that the experience of the true Christian is a reality, but it never can be known and felt without the Spirit of God. And Spurgeon looks at two specific elements of that experience, thinking, for example, of a, a reasonably upright and moral citizen who hears the preaching of the word. So this man has a reasonably high opinion of himself. He can tell that perhaps he's uh, more honourable and more upright compared to others. But what brings that person to the point at which they confess themselves to be a lost sinner? It's contrary to nature, says Spurgeon. It's just not the way our hearts incline for an honest and upright man in the eye of the world to feel himself a lost sinner. By nature, we tend to commend ourselves. We think that things are well with us. And so it must be the Holy Spirit's work that brings a man to conviction of sin, or else it never will be done. And after a man has been brought here, what is his instinct? His instinct is to say, well, I'll make it better. I'll make it up. I'll sort myself out. I'll provide what is lacking. For him to come and cast himself upon the crucified Christ in order to obtain salvation is It's not just that he has a problem recognizing the disease. He doesn't go for the cure. He doesn't understand his own nature and his own condition. And then if he does, he has no instinct to find the solution to his problem in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all this then is so contrary to human nature, so diametrically opposed to all the instincts of our poor fallen humanity, that nothing but the Spirit of God can ever bring a man to strip himself of all self-righteousness and all creature strength and compel him to rest and lean simply and wholly upon Jesus Christ the Saviour. That's a lovely description of what it means to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Spurgeon's point is, Unless the Holy Spirit is at work, that simply will not happen. 
So you who doubt the influence of the Spirit, he asks, produce the like, produce the same thing without him. Go and die as Christians die, live as they live, and if you can show the same calm resignation, the same quiet joy, and the same firm belief that adverse things shall nevertheless work together for good, that then we might perhaps be at liberty to resign the point, and not until then." So you think about how a Christian comes to Christ in the first place as a needy sinner. Then you think how that Christian lives on through the life that God calls him to live. And you say that whether or not he is high or low, whatever blessings he enjoys, whatever treasures he receives, however much he responds, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Everything that is good in a man comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. And now, last of all, the acts, the acceptable acts of the Christian's life cannot be performed without the Spirit. And thus, again, you see the necessity for the Spirit of God. What is the first act of the Christian's life? Repentance. Have you ever tried to repent? asks the preacher. If you've tried without the Spirit of God, you know it is an impossibility. A rock might as soon weep, a desert might as soon blossom of its own accord as a sinner repent of his own instinct. Or faith. Perhaps you think faith very easy. Well, it's it's easy in one sense to describe, easy on one level to explain. But once you feel the weight of your sin, faith does not seem quite so straightforward as we might have imagined. And so we have to cry for the help of the Spirit, and through him we can do all things, though without him we can do nothing at all. And Spurgeon again then moves on, as he did in his last point, from the uh, initial acts to the ongoing acts, and speaks of the consecrating of oneself to Christ, or the daily act, or the act of daily prayer, or the act of constant submission, or preaching the gospel, ministering to the poor, comforting the desponding. In all these things, the Christian finds his weakness and his powerlessness, unless he is clothed about with the Spirit of God. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why so many of us are so feeble and so ineffectual in our labours, that we effectively do things in our own strength, let's say ineffectively do things in our own strength. We, we attempt to do things as if we could do them alone. And perhaps we've tried, and we've tried with real sincerity, and our words have fallen flat. And yet with the Spirit's blessing, the things that either we cannot do or that we cannot do well, effectively, fruitfully, they are done and they're done in a way that brings glory and honour to God. And he talks about his own experience and many of us can enter in that there are times when we wish we'd we'd never said anything, we'd not even preached, we'd felt we've done so badly and, and accomplished so little or maybe gone even contrary to our very aims and intents. But if the Spirit of God blesses, then the work goes on. He goes on further even to say that without the Spirit, everything is actually unacceptable to God. But whatever we do under his influence, however we may despise it, it is not despised of God, for he never despises his own work, and the Spirit never can look upon what he works in us with any other view than that of complacency and delight. 
If the Spirit helps me to groan, then God must accept the groaner. If you could pray the best prayer in the world, says Spurgeon, without the Spirit, God would have nothing to do with it. But if your prayer is broken and lame and limping, if the Spirit made it, God will look upon it and say as he did upon the works of creation, it is very good and he will accept it. And that's the sweetest consolation to those of us who know and feel ourselves to be incompetent and incapable, who can see the flaws and the failings in the efforts that we make. The preacher who knows that his words are stumbling, that he just rolls along and he wishes he could soar, and yet he seems just to stumble. To the the comforter, who doesn't seem to be able to get the right words out, who doesn't always feel like he's spoken very well, to the person who goes to minister to the sick or to the needy and gives something, whether it's time or, or some material investment, and says, well, almost what's the point of doing this? It just doesn't seem to secure any good. And yet if the Holy Spirit is at work, that stumbling, broken, weak and pathetic act by human estimation with the blessing of God, knows the the fruitfulness in the soul and in the life that God has designed to give it. And so the concluding question, this single application following this five-fold demonstration of the proposition that it is absolutely necessary for the Holy Spirit to work if any man is to be saved, do you have the Spirit of God in you? Not a little religion, but the Spirit of God at work. He says, if it's all your own, you're a lost man to this moment. If you've gone no further than you've walked yourself, you're not on the road to heaven yet. You've got your face turned the wrong way. But if you've received something which neither flesh nor blood could reveal to you, if you've been led to do the very thing which you once hated and to love that thing which you once despised and to despise that on which your heart and pride were once set, then, soul, if this be the Spirit's work, rejoice. And you see how he's here describing and exhorting in one that he's saying that here is the evidence of the Spirit's work, this repenting, this converting power, this turning about of the man, the woman, in all the instincts and appetites of the soul. For where the Spirit begins that good work, he will carry it on. And so he's asking, how do you know? Have you been led to Christ and away from self? Have you been led away from all your feelings and doings and willings and prayings as the ground of your trust and your hope? And have you been brought nakedly to rely upon the finished work of Christ? That's what the Spirit does. It doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit, and so it must be happening because of the Holy Spirit. And there is some of the evidence that God is at work in your heart. And if that's so, that he will not cease until he has completed the work, you shall go from strength to strength, you shall stand among the blood-washed throng, at last complete in Christ, accepted in the Beloved. But if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his. And so he ends with a prayer, a prayer to God and a plea to the people. May the Spirit lead you to your chamber now to weep, now to repent and now to look to Christ and may you now have a divine life implanted which neither time nor eternity shall be able to destroy. God, hear this prayer and send us away with a blessing 
For Jesus' sake. Amen. Perhaps if we had that greater awareness then of the absolute necessity of the work of the Spirit in salvation, not denying the responsibility of men and women, boys and girls, in hearing to respond as God calls them to do, but to expect that the Spirit of Christ will so work and to speak to God on behalf of men and to men on behalf of God with expectation, ourselves depending, that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, when He works, will accomplish all God's saving purposes in all those in whose heart he operates to the praise of the glory of his grace alone. Well, I hope that that's been a a blessing and a help to you. Next week, God willing, we'll be looking at sermons 255 to 261 and our featured sermon is sermon 259. That's 259 and the Uh, title is A Home Mission Sermon. I look forward to uh, joining you then, and I hope that until then, this same God, by his gracious spirit, will make Christ increasingly precious to us, that we may serve him in our generation. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.